0: The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig.
1: Now, hold on there. Hold on one Texas minute. Now, hold on.
2: Thank you, Sharon.
1: These people don't quit, now, do you? Now. Is this the way we're gonna play the game here? Are you guys gonna keep asking these asinine questions till you see some dirty pictures? Is that, is that what you want? <laughs> There's a you... war in that whole area out over there. <laughs> but as commander in chief, I'm ever cognizant of my authority to launch a full scale orgy of death there on the desert sand. <laughs> Probably won't, but then again, I might. Issue number three, life after death. Some pundits say it doesn't exist. Theologians disagree. Is there an afterlife? Jack come on. I uh, really don't know. About- <laughs> well, it's not my field. I'd like to believe, but it's Wrong! To- there is life after death. The soul does not ascend to heaven, but rather rests in a limbo state that varies depending on the
0: karma of the spirit. If it- Friends, this will not be a normal episode of Politics, Politics, Politics. During the downtime of the political calendar, I feel like we have an opportunity to explore some of the elements of the political experience that get lost when the machine is moving a million miles a minute. So now that we have a little room to breathe, I've got something I'd like you to hear. Dana Carvey is the greatest political comedian of all time comedy is meant to be argued over. So you might not agree initially. But I believe over this episode, I'll convince you. We're going to look at three moments in time of Carvey's career. Saturday Night Live, The Dana Carvey Show, and his current podcast, Fantastic. But this podcast isn't only about Dana Carvey. In the process of producing it, I realized that it was about something more. It's something that we've talked about a lot on this show, the state of political comedy. So while I was understanding why Dana Carvey's old stuff still held up and why his new stuff is still funny for a lot of the same reasons, it became clear to me. Probably unspoken, political comedy became partisan instead of essential. And that's why the patron saint of finding the essence of an impression, of bringing that to the fore in a performance and then putting it on the stark relief of the political stage matters. Well, in that case, Dana Carvey's legend needs to spread Further, his achievements etched into marble. So the next time that something like this happens, we have an icon to look back to and remind us why political comedy is so funny. Politics, 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 politics. Dana Carvey is the greatest political comedian of all time. From Dog and Pony Show Audio, this is Politics, Politics, Politics. And I'm Justin Robert Young.
1: From the nation's capital, the McLaughlin Group. An unrehearsed program presenting inside opinions and forecasts on major issues of the day. Issue one, the big C. President Reagan this week had a cancer scare. What effect will this cancer surgery have on Ronald Reagan's presidency? Fred Barnes. John, it was not a cancer scare. He really did have cancer. Now I think he's going to bounce back uh, with the McLaughlin with Group and good
0: humor, and was out- launched in 1982, syndicated on California, public television. It joined a bustling world of political problem, debate shows Arnold that Reagan's... often took place on Sundays. Still a decade away from the primetime shout fest of the O'Reilly Factor and others, the McLaughlin Group was the rowdiest strain of these kinds of shows. In fact, Back then, the idea of shouting on television about politics was something seen as corrosive to America itself. Now, you just heard a clip of the McLaughlin group. It ain't exactly a food fight. And yet still, back when it debuted, here is how it was thought of. This is a PBS Frontline special entitled Why We Hate the Media. 18
3: of these political talk shows. From NBC News in Washington, this is Meet the Press. They range from the sedate high church of a Meet the Press. And according to
0: a new poll, Bob Dole is down 21 points.
1: To the noisy
3: tent shows like the McLaughlin Group. Right. The right thing to do for generations oh, to, come the, to, the, means. to the world would be better off and America would be a happier country if there were no crossfire and no capital gang and no McLaughlin group.
0: But now there's a heretic in this church. Now with apologies to all the other work that Dana Carvey did on SNL when it came to political comedy, including all of his impressions, George Bush, Ross Perot, I could probably do 30 minutes about how the Church lady presaged the Culture War, we are going to exclusively focus in this segment on Carvey's SNL work with the McLaughlin group, which brings us to how it started. Robert Smigel who many of you may know now as Triumph the Insult Comic Dog or from TV Funhouse, is a writer on SNL at this time, and he's the first to flag McLaughlin as inherently mockable. He writes the McLaughlin Group sketches. But even then, it's a hard road to walk. Smigel explains in 2009, in a conversation with fellow sketch comedy god Bob Odenkirk, how the McLaughlin Group was Difficult to write. Quote There's nothing wrong with a sketch that's one joke, like the McLaughlin group. If it's going to be that funny, if you can find enough ways to make it build, if you stay ahead of the audience, but if you slip up even a little bit, the audience gets ahead of you and it's humiliating. And it exposes the worst kind of Saturday Night Live sketches. Now, Smigel is a genius and these sketches are brilliant on the page. But the fact that the source material is obscure and the premise is so simple, the build is so obvious, what you need is a performance. You need a fascinating supernova that no matter what is happening, no matter how simple the pattern, you simply want it to continue. And that's where Carvey's performance as John McLaughlin is indispensable.
1: Issue number five. What number am I thinking of? Papillon. Buchanan.
0: Jeez, uh, 82. Wrong, uh,
1: Eleanor Clift. Uh, is it between one and 100? do the issue. I, 40. Wrong, Tyne. 212. Two hundred and twelve. Wrong, Jacarino. True. Wrong. The correct answer is one thirty-four. One thirty-four. Issue number six. What did you have for breakfast today, Eleanor? Some cantaloupe. Morton Town, like. USA. I had poached eggs and toast. Just Jamondo. Bacon and eggs. Patty, patty, Buke Buke. I'm thinking waffles, maybe a little. Wrong. You all had Special K with banana. <laughs> Issue number seven, what is issue 14 going to be? Some say it will deal with an economic matter. Others believe it will involve Germany. More teeny tiny tabletop.
3: Oh, acid rain?
1: Wrong! Eleanor, gee, I think you're swollen all. I have. (laughs) I have no idea. Wrong! You know quite well. You're just shy. Mondo, jackalope, gee, man, mania. Well, it might be. I'm not finished with your name, Germanicle. (laughs) lantern, JG, jummy, jummy, Jammy, mayhem. You're insane, John. Wrong! (laughs) I'm perfectly sane. Everyone else, however, is insane and trying to steal my magic bag. St. Patrick of Buchanonomics. (laughs) I think the joke's leave, just John.
0: machine oh, gun. The cynical world of political media undresses for us. We see the true form of the unholy alliance of professional politics and the media and its naked ego. Because in these sketches, we meet their king, John McLaughlin. He dominates his panelists, people who preen and pontificate for a living, pummeled and berated. But it's the person who crumples them that defines their values. Brash, ignorant, and house crazy. For a world cynical with the broadcasted happiness of the Reagan years that was then extended by popular demand with George Bush, this is an X-ray into what the political class really found important. Beyond that, it exposed a subculture of political obsessives. The world knew that they should be paying attention more to politics, but, you know, there's life to live. And every time you peek inside to see what people are talking about, this is the kind of act you get. It's either very boring or very pedantic. It's kind of like uh, in Monty Python and the search for the Holy Grail when they want to go to Camelot and then they do the dance number. And... Well, on second thoughts, let's not go to Camelot. It is a silly place. Right. Right. But in a second, we, we, we're going to get to the idea of partisan comedy versus essential comedy. And what I think people might lean on with, with some of these sketches is that they're not. Partisan. They are essential. And I would argue that that's correct. The point of these sketches is to find an essential element of humor and then blow it up beyond recognition, giving a lot of runway for an amazing performer like Dana Carvey. But it wasn't without teeth. For our younger listeners, it probably bears mentioning that none of the characters in these sketches are made up. Obviously, John McLaughlin is real, but so are the panelists, Eleanor Cliff, Jack Jarman, and Pat Buchanan. So they're running these sketches, and Pat Buchanan is a real person. He, at that time, is a commentator, but then he decides he wants to run for president. Pat Buchanan is, in real life, the intellectual forefather of Donald Trump, specifically on Trump's and Buchanan's key issue, immigration. He runs unsuccessfully in 1992. And this is how the McLaughlin group treats Pat Buchanan's real candidacy vis-a-vis the character on the show.
1: Thanks, John. Issue one, Bush trounces Buchanan. Super Tuesday is clobber Buchanan day. Now that Bush has scraped Buchanan off his shoe, will his platform be affected even one iota by the views of Pat Buchanan? Pat Buchanan! <laughs> well, John, I think I made significant inroads into the Republican... Long the- Freddie Baumstammer! Well, while I think Pat ran a decent campaign... Wrong! Wrong! More Tony Maroney.
3: Well, I don't think Pat has anything to be ashamed of.
1: Wrong! He had no impact whatsoever. (laughs) Esho 6. Predictions. A new state will be created that Pat can actually win a primary in. It will be made entirely of Swiss cheese and float in the Atlantic. Stop it, John. It will be peopled by little fairies and be called Fantasyland and exist entirely in Pat's head. John, that's enough. All right, fine. Prediction two. Pat's gonna cry. I am not. Wrong! You are too.
0: That's it. I'm leaving. Knock him dead in Connecticut. Bye-bye. Something I want you guys to pay attention to. That's about as... Personally mean (laughs) as you can get in a sketch where you've just dedicated the entire point of the sketch to making fun of one person's personal failure. You are using every tool at your disposal to call them a feckless loser, somebody who has failed in their chosen pursuit. That being said, please note. That this was not partisan. So, there was not an attack on the ideas, just his utility. Keep that in mind because we're going to circle back to it later. But there's one more thing about this sketch specifically that I want you to to hear. Just how popular they'd become. Here's the end of the sketch. How do we
1: start the show? Fred Bedhead. Live from New York it's Saturday night. Wrong!
0: Wrong! (laughs) The audience so believes in the powers of cult figure John McLaughlin that he stops the cold open. Something that never happens on Wrong SNL. Come on. Jack with cheese. Uh, live from New York, it's Saturday night.
1: Wrong! More Tanawara Dingy Dong, dong, dong.
0: Well, I-, I think it's live from New York, it's Saturday night.
1: Wrong!
0: Just kidding, you were all right. Stop the show! That's how popular these sketches had gotten. That's how much the the audience, nationwide, was laughing at the idea of John McLaughlin. Now, of course, this is SNL, so any sketch that is this popular that's parodying a real person eventually has to come to the final phase. And the real person comes out and confronts the people that are portraying them. But what's key here is the audience reaction. Listen to the pop John McLaughlin gets Why when he makes his along. cameo. John, John. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Sorry, the teasing was starting to get to me, and I had to take action. Issue our unified Europe. Good for them. How about us? Boon or Bane? Freddie Barnes and Noble. Well, I think we depend far too much. Wrong. Uh, patty cake, patty cake, Baker's Buchanan. Europe ought to be concerned that we. Wrong. You know- More Tony Bennett, less Tony Martin. Yeah. Well, I, I would have to say. Wrong. That- Jack, Jack, Boback banana, banana, Bobak,
0: P, <laughs> five, Fomac, Jack. All right, you can start the show now, you big ham. It'll be my pleasure, live from New York. It's this Saturday night. This is John night. McLaughlin, not a politician, not a celebrity, not a musician, not somebody that that has a gigantic footprint. John McLaughlin got famous to the rest of the country because SNL was making fun of him. Yeah, look, back in this time period, people care about politics and it's popular enough that it creates its own genre of television, but it's nowhere near where it is today. It was a cult pursuit. This is watching home and garden TV. This is anime. This is day trading. Something that you might know somebody that's really, 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 really into it. But unless you're enmeshed in that subculture, it just kind of seems foreign. So imagine SNL doing that now, creating a sketch for any of the three cult pursuits that I just mentioned and then they become so popular that they open all the shows and they bend the genre of the show itself and then somebody that is tied to that sketch comes out and gets that kind of ovation those would have to be some pretty funny sketches and when you're rolling that over in your head And you're trying to think of, oh, how funny would these sketches need to be? How many catchphrases would have to come out of them? How many uh, times would they have to repeat the sketch over and over and over again for the audience to react like that? And you think about what it would take? Then understand what you are doing in your head is carving out exactly how far Dana Carvey's performance lifted this concept. Brought it to the mainstream and made everything not only more recognizable, but hilarious. All right, here's a little comedy history. Dana Carvey leaves SNL with tremendous momentum. And because he's so multi-talented, likable, and youthful, he's got options for him, And they're rare for SNL alums who normally either just take their shots at TV or movie acting. Carvey is offered the chance to replace David Letterman on The Late Night Show after Dave jumps to CBS to host his own show. Carvey turns it down because he didn't want... The grueling, suffocating, nightly schedule to affect his relationship with his young kids. All right. Seriously. That's a a good dude right there. Even more badass, he follows it up with the sketch comedy equivalent of martyrdom. Okay, so this part doesn't have a lot to do about politics, so I'll try to keep it quick. Everybody wants in on the Dana Carvey sketch game at this moment in time. And so he gets a lot of offers. And some of the offers are are for like HBO, uh, where he can do whatever he wants. Because Dana Carvey kind of wants to do something a little bit more subversive than SNL. He's kind of a counterculture guy. But ultimately, he also gets the most mainstream offer possible. ABC the number one network in television at this time and they want to give him the most plum comedy spot that they have right after home improvement the most watched comedy on television at this moment they also give him a blank check to assemble whatever squad he wants and this is a legendary legendary casting crew He brings Smigel along, the author of the McLaughlin Group. He then brings on head writer Louis C.K., who had done nothing up until this point. I think he worked on Conan. He then also has in the writer's room Dino Stamatopoulos and Charlie Kaufman. You know, the guy who wrote Adaptation and all these other amazing mind-bending dramedies. Charlie Kaufman is in this writer's room. Well, how about the crew? Okay, well, you got Dana Carvey. He obviously is going to be your home run hitter. How about two guys that would go on to have a decent career? Steve Carell and Stephen Colbert. This is their breakout performance. Here's the problem. When you're putting all of those guys together, you're going to get a very balls-to-the-walls show. And no matter how funny it is, it's never going to succeed with the crowd that just got done watching Home Improvement. Uh Look, the Ben Stiller Show, Mr. Show, uh, The State, these are all contemporaries, but none of them tried to do what they did on this stage. None of them had the primetime lead-in on the biggest family comedy on television. None of them tried to do it on the number one network, ABC. And with that, the Dana Carvey show introduced itself into the world with a political sketch. Not George H.W. Bush. Not Ross Perot that both of which Carvey made famous on Saturday Night Live. No, this would be a Bill Clinton address to the nation. Watching it now, it's a masterpiece of escalation. It also became a famous commercial apocalypse that might have stunted the career of a comedy supernova. That being said, it's everything that is perfect and sublime about Carvey as a performer and his off-time partner in writing, Robert Smigel. I'm going to walk you through this sketch in three phases. And here's the first.
2: Right now, the Republicans are in the process of selecting their presidential nominee who will oppose me this fall. I watch with great pride as these very qualified candidates (laughs) compete in the political arena for the right to face me in the general election. (laughs) i welcome the challenge from the eventual nominee, and I look forward to debating him my. fall. <laughs> I'm sure that will be a very interesting thing to watch. <laughs> look, I, I'm sorry for laughing, but come on, it's a freak show. <laughs> I mean, I am going to walk in. They, they got some 90-year-old guy, some funny-faced millionaire, and Adolf Hitler, I mean. <laughs> Throw in a bearded lady and I'll pay a quarter to say
0: it. All right. So we get some great essence of Clinton in here, right? He's arrogant. He's laughing at all of his competition. In terms of context, you need to understand that in 1996, at this time, that was the common knowledge. Bill Clinton was not going to have a problem in his reelection. And none of the candidates that were currently in the primaries were, were, were really going to put any kind of challenge to him. So let's go ahead and put ourselves in the position of that home improvement audience. They just got done watching Tim the Tool Man and, and, and their neighbor that whose face you never saw. And, and, you know, they're a little bit more conservative, but, you know, they see the writing on the wall. Bill Clinton is fairly popular across the board, aside from the Rush Limbaugh crowd. So, you know, look, this is pointed... But it's nothing that you don't probably believe deep in your heart. Bill Clinton's going to get reelected and he knows it. So, in that, it's
2: pretty funny. Here's
0: phase two. I'm here
2: to tell you about our new strategy. Our latest research tells us that I'm guaranteed to win re-election if I just don't do anything. (laughs) Good or bad, just freeze right here, right now. No sex stuff, no white water, and I am in. Now, my wife Hillary Clinton's been the subject of numerous accusations. Accusations, which I believe are unfair, but screw it, she's history, I can't afford her. Now, That's right. Just take her out right there. I don't care. Now, tonight I'm here to assure you I've placed Hillary Clinton under house arrest. In fact, I've got her locked up in her room. Take a look. That is not a pretty sight. But don't worry, that door is reinforced. In
0: 1996, this is the joke about Hillary. She is a snarling dog of a liability. Bill, meanwhile, is revealed to be motivated by politics over everything else. He's willing to put his wife in a kennel so he can get reelected president. And yet, we know he's still going to win. We like him anyway. That's a great character. Now, in one of them alternate, like, Loki multiverse TVA realities, we would escalate, like, one more time the absurdity of this sketch and then punch out. You've you've kind of done what you came here to do. You showed Bill Clinton to be shallow. You've shown him to be overconfident. You've made your point that Bill Clinton will likely be reelected. We've all laughed about it. So you just figure out a way to get out of here. You know, like maybe Bill Clinton says he's taking the advice not to do anything so seriously that he's going to space. It's revealed that there's a rocket platform next to him. He puts on a space suit. A few buxom bikini-clad blondes pile into the shuttle for comedic effect. Clinton pokes his head out and says, see you in November, losers. And then we're off to the races. The Home Improvement audience says, you know what? I like this Dana Carvey. I hope he does the church lady next. But that's not what happens. Because there's one more element about Bill Clinton that this show needs to explain. One that motivates both of the previous revelations. It's what separates Carvey's performances from so many of his contemporaries. The innate ability to find the essence, that one thing we all know. And for Clinton, it's clear. And now that Carvey has all the creative control, he is going to blow this essence up as big as he possibly can. He's arrogant, but why? He's politically motivated, but why? And you can't just say, well, you know, because he's Bill Clinton. Let's interrogate why he's Bill Clinton. It's because he desperately wants to be loved. He's somebody that you probably know. They, they, they want affection and they want validation so bad that once they get it from somebody, they just kind of move on to the next. So even his wife and partner in crime in Hillary is now a liability. He wants affection from you the viewer. And because he wants so desperately to be loved, he needs to be everything to everyone. So in a visual medium, how do you represent that? And without Hillary, I can
2: be both father and mother to our nation. And this isn't just talk, I've taken this a step further. With the employment of estrogen hormonal therapy, I have developed the ability to breastfeed. Let's just take a look here. Let me open up my shirt so you can see what I'm talking about. There it is. There, every little baby. There you go. Just, just, Just drink up there, little baby. I'd like to see Steve Forbes do this. I invite the American people to suckle on my teats. That's right, suckle up. Not too hard there, just suck easy, baby. I know this is shocking to you and I feel your revulsion, but do you know how many babies I can feed with this milk? Do you realize how much money can be saved in the school lunch programs? Let me show you how much. Sit down there, baby. That's right. I will feed the world. That's right. Come on in here. I can feed babies as well as puppies and kitties. That's right. Just chuckle in there. Strap on, Tricia. Eat to your heart's content. And look, that's good stuff. That's all right. And kitties, too. Good. Good. And look, I've had myself surgically fitted with a hand's ass. So, with these warm downy feathers, I can give presidential warmth to these hatching eggs right here. Well, thank you very much. Now watch this thing.
0: If you've never seen this sketch, please watch it. There are two things, though, that need to be pointed out if you are only experiencing this in an audio medium. First, it's how realistic these teats are. <laughs> Not only the nipples themselves, but also the flabby uh, Bill Clinton body that they dot. And and, and there are uh, nipples all the way down his chest onto his belly. And they projectile squirt milk. Second, it's how many dogs and cats are being constantly brought out to suckle upon them. It's a noble failure. The Dana Carvey Show never got to complete its eight-episode run. It faced constant suffocating pressure from the network to change course to what they assumed they were getting with a very likable, family-friendly face in Carvey when they signed him. It is beloved by comedy nerds like me. But to our purpose here, let's understand what the sketch did accomplish. Yes, it went way too far, way over the line. But it did show you a heightened caricature about who this very famous person was. And that's what I want you to take away from this sketch, is that Bill Clinton isn't just a politician, he's a celebrity. He's somebody that we've seen time and time again, and even under pressure. Sure, he's before Lewinsky at this point, but he was still somebody that was a national fascination, and he got the best kind of celebrity treatment here. He wanted to be loved so much that he squirted milk on the Resolute desk for it. And no, the bit doesn't land the play. But then again, there is probably a difficulty in trying to do that when the runway is covered with so many puppies and kitties. No, the divine that we need to interrogate is not quality. It's your target and method comedically. It's the line between essential parody and partisan parody when it comes to political humor. So let's pause on Dana Carvey for a second and take a bit of a meta view. Because I think that the final element of understanding Carvey's brilliance is understanding his place in political comedy history. I believe that we are just now emerging, hopefully, from a prolonged period of partisan dominant comedy. Again, a diametrically opposed version to essential comedy. And here's how I would explain it. In partisan comedy, you are telling a story about a hero and a villain. There is a point that is unable to be rendered away from the political opinion that is being advanced. You don't want to leave it up to chance in the viewer's mind what you want to get out of it. And there is very, very, very funny versions of this on on all sides of the aisle. Uh, You know, Stephen Colbert largely did that. Uh, Norm MacDonald largely did that with his... Uh, sites trained more on the Clintons. There was no doubting in either of those cases that, like, these guys had political opinions and they were getting them across to you in a very funny way. With sketch comedy, however, it's a little harder, at least for me, which is why I tend to favor the essentialism. The idea that you can, as we've described previously with Carvey, Heighten something small into something big, something universal about a person, and then let that play in the backdrop of your own political opinions, and you decide how that fits in yourself. And I am painting these two as so separate because I do believe that I know when this changed, when we went from the dominant, most popular form of political humor and impression specifically being essentialist and went into partisanship. And the line is George W. Bush, specifically played by Will Ferrell and written by Adam McKay. Both those guys have gone on to tremendous success. And with it, they have made no secret of their activism. Adam McKay has had a whole nother career being a writer-director of very serious political parodies, including The Big Short and Vice. But during the time that they were creating a great, amazing, essentialist impression, really the best one since Dana Carvey's George H.W. Bush. And specifically in the year 2004, there was a popular opinion, and I don't know how much Farrell and McKay really hold this in their heart, that they made George Bush too likable. By leaving that last part out, sure he's dumb, sure he's folksy, but also he's evil and you shouldn't vote for him, they did the opposite at least in their heads. Now, let's set aside how much sketch comedy can actually affect an election. Just set it aside. I don't even want to go into it. If I start talking, I I won't stop. The belief comedically is that these impressions can shape popular opinion. And from that point, you don't see a lot of essentialist impressions. It's why SNL could never really get a good Obama. It's was it's why there were not a whole lot of great Obama sketches even off SNL. It's why the most popular impression leading up through that was Tina Fey's Sarah Palin. And that was obviously a partisan take. I mean, a good one, but a partisan one. And then, of course, we get to Trump. Where Obama was toothless, Trump is not really there to be funny. The Trump caricature becomes effectively a pamphlet. It's like one of those chick tracks, the 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 little bible comics. I mean, sometimes they tell a decent story, but that's never the point. The point is that you get the message. And trust me, anybody who has been a fan of political comedy over the last few years, has been buried up to their neck in clapter with the message. Which is why I want to illustrate specifically the modern differences between the way that Dana Carvey hones his craft and our modern partisan meta, essentialism versus partisanship. We've danced around this up till this point, but I'm going to make this very clear. The reason that Dana Carvey is as good as he is, is that he can find the truth in a character. It's not what we see. It's not what we hear. It's what we know. Sometimes it's just what we're afraid we know. Sometimes it's what we're excited somebody else also knows. Stephen Colbert refers to it here as the hook. is one of the great impressionists, the, the hook finder of all hook finders. His impression was not like Impressatron 5000. It wasn't picture perfect, but it was the hook was so deep that it didn't matter. In all of these examples that we've given so far, I believe that as brilliant as the writing is by Robert Smigel, the performances are what bring these alive. And let me be clear, there are few more gifted physical comedians in terms of facial reactions and body movement than Dana Carvey. In fact, the only other person that I can think of immediately that's his contemporary that we can compare him to is Jim Carrey, possibly the most physical gifted comedian of his or any generation but thankfully we can compare jim carrey and dana carvey because they've both recently done high profile impressions of current president joe biden carrey on saturday night live was terrible you're going to say no Mr. President, please let him speak. He let you speak, now let him speak. But he's lying. I can't point
2: out if he says a lie. (laughs) I I said two words, you son of a no. Don't do it, Joe. It's exactly what he wants. Don't let your inner Whitey Bulger come out. Just flash them all that smile they taught you in anger management. Now, a lot of this isn't
0: Jim Carrey's fault. The fundamental problem with this character, endemic of most SNL political parodies over the last five years, is that it's written from a hero-villain perspective. It also, by necessity, has to draw the line of relatability on the stage instead of between the stage and the audience. The viewer is supposed to identify with Joe Biden which limits his potential comedically. Even when he shows weakness, it's weakness that's kind of cool. Carrie knows that he's working with a limited resource here, which is why, visually, he mugs and gesticulates to try to get laughs while his character is too busy being... relatable. Carvey, meanwhile as a rule, very, very rarely makes the politician someone you should explicitly root for because rooting for people isn't funny. What's funny is the universal truth And the universal truth about Joe Biden is that he's a mumbling wreck whose words rattle around in his mouth like Yahtzee dice before tumbling out at random while everyone tries to make sense of the results. Here is Carvey on Colbert's late night show in June of 2021. Let's get real here.
3: Come on, now, number one, the one part. Number two, the thing the guy said. Number three, you know the drill. Come on, folks. So you're you're pleased with our progress? Absolutely. You know, I mean, come on, let's get real. You know, I've never been too good with, uh, you know, what what do you call them, what do you call them? Names? No, no, the other, the other one, the big guys, all of them. Words? That's the one. Words. They're like Republicans. They don't want to work with me, but I keep trying anyway.
0: Well, sir, I have to say. Like Joe Biden, hate Joe Biden. Don't give a rat's ass about Joe Biden, but have seen him on television. That's the joke. And no one does it better. I'm going to go a step further. On Carvey's podcast, Fantastic. He did something that I thought was brilliant. A prank call between Donald Trump and Joe Biden.
3: What's it do? I'll get it, honey. Ring, 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 (laughs) ring. (laughs) I got to do Biden. You got to make the ring Biden's like, hello? You're never going to make it, Joe. (laughs) You're never going to make it to the White House. You're never going to make it, Joe. Come on now. Come on, man. Who is this? What's the deal? Come on. You never going to make it, Joe. It's like a song I could sing every day of my life. You're never going to make it. Excuse me. I wasn't talking. Here's the deal. Come on, man. Who is this? You're never going to make it. I'll tell you who I am. And then I'm going to hang up, Joe. Come on, man. Here's the deal. Number one. I don't know who's calling. Number two. You're just saying the same thing over and over again. Come on, man. Come on, let's get real. This isn't rocket science. Come on, no joke. I'm not kidding around here. Joe, you know who I am? No. I'm the motherfucking president of the United <laughs> States of America. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> who was it, honey? I don't know. I'm a crazy man. That's the deal. I couldn't figure it out. Well, who do you think it was? Number one could have been a prank call. Number two, maybe somebody else. Number three, some kind of
0: performance. Here's the universal truth about Trump. He's petty. He takes slights personally, and he's competitive to the point where if he read in a magazine that the last person to sit down in a negotiation always loses that negotiation, he'd immediately sell all of his chairs before he got distracted and read something else about how to get an edge. That matches with the confusion of Biden. The punchline is that Biden doesn't even know that the petty asshole calling him and wishing him death and destruction is Trump, the most parodied, recognizable voice on the planet. Notice again that there's barely a good guy and a bad guy. There's a weird bully and a confused old man. Either get what they want. Biden doesn't beat the bully and Trump doesn't wound the man who is too confused to realize that he should be wounded. And that's because Carvey understands the universal truth about politics. They're alien to us. Now, some are aliens we like. Some we hate. Some aliens agree with us and tell us what we want to hear. Some don't and make us angry. But the line of relatability can never extend to envelop them. Ironically, Carvey's ability to find that universal truth winds up making us identify with parts of his parodies more than the hero-villain hero worship ever really could. Bush Senior's spastic enthusiasm, Ross Perot's doggish inventiveness, Clinton's desperate desire to be loved, John McLaughlin's mastership of his domain. Combine the years the degree of difficulty, the stages he's done it on, and I don't think that there's an argument. Dana Carvey is the greatest political comedian of all time. This has been a special presentation of politics, politics, politics for dog and pony show audio. My name is Justin Robert Young. I wrote and hosted this episode. If you would like to email us, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. If you'd like to support us, you can go ahead on over to take politics seriously to sign up for our Patreon at the $3 level. You get two bonus episodes every week. And while they won't always be like this, I guarantee they will all include my sultry, supple voice. Of course, at the $10 level, you get your name read on each and every podcast, and this one is no different. Headphones, Neil, Doctor G, the other half of Whiskey Wednesday, Idris, the government unfiltered podcast, Hundred Mile Runner, Berkeley, Stephen, Kathy, Max, Zombie Doc, D. Really, Methuselah, Honeythuckle, the Gen, Middle Age Mike, Dot Com Junkie, Calamity Zap, D. Laser, Lord Scale, De Quincey, Anile the Third, and Gloria Young for King of the New World Order, Utah, Jimmy, Montana, Chad. David, Snuffies, Off Route 44, Charles, Olin and Angela, D.L., Miranda Janelle, persons familiar with the matter, Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, just another pilot, Will, Frozen Summers, Jay Pink, and Andrew. Thank you all for listening. This has been a passion project. that has been kicking around in my head for a long time. Hopefully you enjoyed it. And had some laughs along the way. Oh, and if Dana Carvey or anybody associated with Dana Carvey is ever listening to this part of the podcast, uh, consider this just my appeal that uh, if you have an extra 30 minutes, love to talk more with you on the show about it. Until next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying... some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this is the only one that dares discuss.
2: all oh, Three.